0: Hi, this is Stuart Weems and welcome to the Investopoly podcast. My goal is to give you simple, easy to understand strategies, insights and tips to help you master the game of building wealth. And in this episode, I'd like to discuss the question, are we in a bubble? Now, obviously it's been well documented that both property and share markets are trading at almost all time highs uh, and it's reasonable or if not even arguably prudent to really ask ourselves, are we in an asset price bubble? Uh, because uh, we know bubbles cannot grow uh, forever at some point, but all bubbles burst. So let's talk about the share market first, and then I'll talk about the Australian property market after that. Uh, So, I mean, share markets around the world, including Australia, have been incredibly resilient throughout the pandemic. Uh, And in fact, that most markets, uh, and that's certainly true for the Australian uh, the US and European markets are trading at above pre-pandemic levels. And it probably shouldn't come to us as too much of a surprise because really the size of government fiscal support uh, in terms of quantity of easing and, and spending by the governments and grants and all those sorts of things has been uh, certainly unprecedented. Uh, and obviously interest rates couldn't be much lower than what they are today in terms of real interest rates with central banks. Uh, they're pretty close to zero, so they, you know, they can't get much lower than that. So it shouldn't be a surprise that share markets have done well. Um, but when we look to uh, share markets, we see signs or examples of bubbles. And I, I think there's probably uh, no better example than the listing of uh, Rivian Automotive in the US. It listed on the NASDAQ. Uh, it listed on the 9th of November. Uh, and it raised $12 billion from investors. So that's how much cash they raised as a result of listing on the NASDAQ. Uh, and its current market cap, which is a uh, market valuation, is $110 billion, making it the fifth most valuable automotive manufacturer in the world uh, behind Volkswagen. Now Volkswagen uh, sells uh, 2.8 million units, uh, cars, uh, trucks, etc., So, of course, it's a well-established and very valuable company. Uh, And to put it in context, uh, Rivian is almost uh, worth as much as CBA, which is uh, Australia's uh, largest or most valuable company on the ASX. Now, perhaps the most noteworthy thing about Rivian is that it hasn't manufactured one product. That's right. It hasn't even generated $1 of revenue, let alone profit. Remembering profit is what... Uh, drives the value of, uh, of a stock or a company uh, rather than just revenue. Now, it's true that um, Amazon, which owns 20% of Rivian, uh, has agreed to buy 100,000 electric trucks uh, and they expect those 100,000 trucks to be on the road by 2030, uh, so over the next nine-ish or so years. Um, uh, but there is absolutely no conceivable way on earth that Rivian is worth $110 billion dollars uh, particularly when it hasn't, as I said, it hasn't manufactured one unit. And we know, you know, the, the troubles that um, uh, Tesla's had to deal with in terms of uh, manufacturing. So, uh, you know, t- to value it that, at that point is just uh, nothing short of insane. Um, and it's true that, you know, if you look wider in the US, that the tech companies have certainly contributed a lot to really US uh, share market returns over the last 10 years. And in fact, the FanMag stocks, uh, which are you know, the six stocks including Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, uh, Google, uh, which is Alphabet, uh, Apple and Microsoft. Uh, so uh, use that uh, FanMag as, as an acronym, of course, um, now account for 24% of the S&P 500 index in terms of value. Uh, the value of these companies, the aggregate value of these companies is circa $8.5 trillion. And to put that in context, the whole of Japan's share market is worth $6 trillion. So uh, they've certainly driven a lot of stock share market returns uh, over the last 10 years. And they're certainly making up a very large, I and mean, concentrated a large amount of value uh, just in those uh, six companies. Uh, it's also noteworthy, I think, to point out that with the rise of Tesla's uh, share price, it joined the S&P 500 index in December 2020, uh, and since joining has contributed about half a trillion dollars in terms of value to that index over time. So when you look at what's, what's driving performance in the US, uh, you can certainly drag it back to um, just a handful of stocks, or at least a uh, uh, attribute a lot of the gains to, to a handful of stocks. Now, it's important to point out that not all these stocks are valued like Rivian, you know, with no um, connection with reality. Uh, that's Rivian, of course, uh, and I, I think Tesla is the same. But uh, uh, some of these uh, have um, very sound fundamentals. So you take Apple as an example. Uh, Apple took 38 years to reach a, tr- a trillion-dollar market valuation, uh in 2018 about mid 2018 uh so 30 30, uh, 38 years to get to one trillion it only took another two years to get to two trillion so mid uh 2020 mid last year it reached two trillion uh, and it's currently worth 2.6 trillion dollars now you look at that valuation appreciation you go wow that's crazy um uh, but a lot of the growth has been uh, driven by a, an improvement in underlying earnings, so profit, so it's fundamentally sound. And when you look at its P-E ratio uh, of 28 times, it's not implausible. Uh, and in fact, it's, it's relatively easy to justify. So um, it's not a case of just saying, look, all tech stocks are overvalued, um, and therefore the US is overvalued. Now, we see the same sort of things going on in an Australian share market context as well, obviously to a, a much lesser extent in terms of valuations because our market is so small. But um, look, if you look at cloud-based accounting software provider Xero, uh, it has a market cap of $22 billion. Uh, it recently reported a first-half loss uh, of $6.5 million in the 2022 financial year, so the first half of 2022 financial year. Uh, which isn't a huge loss, but look, it's not making money, uh, and it's valued at $22 billion. Now, throughout the presentation, Zero likes to talk about lifetime value of a customer, um, probably in a way to kind of justify their market valuation to try and keep the share price high. But really, uh, investors uh, really only need to be interested in profitability, uh, of which Zero uh, has none. Uh, but then if you contrast that to, say, BHP, um, it's trading at a forward uh, PE ratio of 12 times, which is ridiculously low. Maybe you know it's it's um, uh, 50% lower than what it should be. Uh, now, of course, it's tracked the fall in the iron ore price of recent. Uh, iron ore price really fell sharply uh, since August, uh, and so that's had an impact on BHP share price. And, and so it should, but maybe not to this extent, where it's trading at a forward. PE of only 12 times. So again there's patches in the Australian market where you go oh it's a bit of a bubble Uh, and then there's patches where you go well it's still very good value. Uh, So let's turn our attention to the property market because it's been well documented about what's happened to property prices and if you look at CoreLogic's home value index uh, we see that in the year to October uh, 2021 uh, houses in Sydney have appreciated by 30%. 26% 26% for Brisbane and 20% for Melbourne. And while these share price increases are unsustainably high, I think it's important to really consider the medium term um, performance because especially considering uh, returns were negative in t- between 2017 and 2019, that two- year period was kind of tumultuous. Uh, we had the federal election, lead up to the federal election, talking about negative gearing, those sorts of things, credit tightening, etc., cetera, et cetera. So when you have a look at the five-year performance through to June 2021, now I use June 2021 because I'm using um, Real Estate Institute of Australia data, um, and the most recent data is for the June quarter. Uh, but when you look at that period, that five-year period, uh, that the the price growth in Brisbane, Melbourne, and Sydney has been between 5 and 7%. So uh, Melbourne and Sydney closer to 7, uh Brisbane closer to 5, uh, which in both instances are bu- is below the long-term average. As I talked about a couple of weeks ago, I mean, there's a few commentators now suggesting that property prices in Australia will come off a bit, uh, well, either a bit or 30%, uh, according to some commentators. Uh, what I think is interesting is we we have a look at sort of medium-term returns tend to be a good predictor of price falls. So what I did is I had a look at the, over the data since 1980, and in Melbourne, Sydney, and Brisbane, peak the biggest price drops in those uh, capital cities. Uh, and then had a look at what was the price growth leading into that, that, that price drop. So here's what I found. Uh, in, in The median pr- house price in Sydney uh, fell by about 15% between 2017 and 2019, so pretty recent. Uh, but the five-year period leading into 2017, uh, property prices rose by about 13% per annum, compounding on average over that five-year period, uh, so above median uh, value for a sustained period of time. Uh, In Melbourne, uh, the median house price dropped uh, by about 11% uh, over 2011-2012, so that's really around the GFC. Uh, The two-year period prior to that, prices rose by 24% per annum, so 24%, you know, two years of consecutive, 24%, so that's pretty significant. Uh, And in Brisbane, Brisbane market's uh, not very volatile, like uh, the the price doesn't jump around too much, but... uh, Um, In 86-87, so this is really around uh, the 80s sort of share market crash, uh, prices fell uh, by about 8%. And the five years prior to that, prices rose 11%. So the conclusion is that if, you know, growth really needs to be above average for an extended period of time, let's say two to five years, for there to be a risk of a price correction, um, given that property prices in Melbourne City and Brisbane uh, over the last 12 months have merely been making up for a really poor period over the last five years. So you know negative returns in between 17 and, and 19. Um, I think all that's happened is just a bit of mean reversion. And so long as prices don't grow by another 20% plus next year, uh, then I, I think the chances of a price correction or that we're in a price bubble, uh, I think the risk is, uh, is very, very low. And finally, let me talk about Bitcoin or crypto. Um, it would be remiss of me not to mention uh, crypto in a podcast about property price bubbles. Um, it's uh, noteworthy that the total value of Bitcoin is now worth 1.1 trillion US dollars. Uh, and the market value of all cryptocurrency uh, is circa $2.6 trillion US. Uh, which is worth more than the entire Australian share market. So that's for a product, if you want to call it a product, um, uh, let's just call it decentralized currency or crypto, um, that's rarely used for anything other than speculation. So if you say, okay, uh, this is a speculative asset and it's now worth more than uh, Australia's entire share market, let's house our souls, if that looks bubble-esque, I think the answer is a resounding absolutely yes. Uh So, um, uh, a gentleman by the name of Rob Arnott uh, is a US market fundamentalist, which means he believes in sort of US fundamentals or market fundamentals to drive returns. Uh, And he's a great commentator who I uh, greatly respect. In a recent interview, he's been talking about micro-bubbles And his observation is that, you know, for example, tech company valuations are not universally irrational. I mean, I spoke just recently or just before about Apple, for example, is a good example of that. Whereas in the dot-com bubble in the early 2000s, uh, certainly valuations were almost universally uh, overcooked. Uh, So instead, it just seems like certain stocks or assets like crypto – are exhibiting bubble-like valuations, and this is what Arnett calls micro-bubbles. So we're not in a big bubble, but we have micro-bubbles. Now, it's kind of interesting to ask ourselves what's caused these bubbles, and of course it's uh, it's difficult to really ascertain, but I su- suspect it's a combination of low interest rates uh, and COVID lockdowns slash restrictions. So low interest rates means that people had more surplus cash because obviously the interest portion or interest bill, household interest bill, has reduced. Uh, and because of COVID restrictions, it means that people have spent less money on travel and entertainment. So they're locked at home. They've got more money because of interest rates. They're spending less money on other things. Uh, and as such, people have been willing to sort of gamble, take higher risk uh, for, because, as a result of this newfound money. Um, in certain assets with the aim of generating quick returns. And according to um, Semester coming out of the US, uh, individual investors opened more than 10 million new brokerage accounts in 2020 last year in the US. So that's the most that's ever happened. And I think it it's, uh, gives lend support to the, the thesis that people have been at home, had more money in their bank, Uh, and thought, well, it's money I never had or never expected to have. Uh, I'll uh, take a risk or take a punt, if you like. Uh, So it begs us to ask the question, aren't fundamentals important anymore? So what makes someone buy Tesla, when it's trading at $1,100 per share, $1,100 per share, Um, using a fundamentals approach, you would have to make ridiculously implausible assumptions to justify that share price. So for example, to justify that share price, Tesla would have to have a growth rate that's more than double what Amazon has produced over the next five to 10 years. Now, Amazon's a once in a generation growth story. And what we're assuming here, or what we have to assume to justify the price is that the growth is going to be more than double, which is kind of crazy uh, and certainly a very risky proposition. Um, so what um, people that buy into these microbubble assets—they're uh, uh, not influenced by fundamentals. They're not trying to um, compare earnings and PE ratios and all those sorts of things. What they're buying is the narrative, is the meme. You know, narratives like Elon Musk is a genius, and since all his wealth is tied uh, to Tesla and SpaceX, well, he's going to make it work, and he, he's a genius, and there's no better incentive to make it work or that the price of Bitcoin will continue to rise and I'm a clown if I don't jump on board, or that zero might one day achieve some scale, but probably more it's just about the, the future momentum of price and that I should jump on board because this thing's going to keep rising because, look, I thought it was expensive at $20 and now it's trading at $130 a share. Um, at some point, I've just got to, got to jump on board. So it's really the narrative that's guiding these or, or adding to these micro-bubbles, Uh, rather than anything that's fundamental. So, of course, the question we need to then ask is when will the micro-bubbles burst? Uh, And when contemplating this question, I think there's really two important observations. The first one is that bubbles can last longer and go higher than any reasonable person could imagine. So, um, and as the saying goes, the market can remain irrational far longer than you can remain solvent. So you most definitely shouldn't short or take a you know, bet against the bubble and short the asset uh, because they can run longer and deeper than you can imagine. And you know, we could be here and two or three times later and Bitcoin's still very high. Um, and secondly, whatever ends a bubble tends to come as a surprise. In fact, by definition, uh, it has to be a surprise. Now, there's a few factors that the market would be unsurprised uh, about that are already reflected in prices like higher inflation Higher interest rates, end of COVID, uh, central bank tapering in terms of QE and those sorts of things. Those sorts of things are unlikely uh, when they occur to impact or affect a bubble uh, or bubble kind of prices. Uh, The catalyst, whatever it is by definition, uh, it has to be something that's unpredictable today. The only alternative to um, uh, the unpredictability is that sometimes... Gravity is just what ends bubbles. So prices or valuations get so high that they start to become unpalatable to almost everyone. It's kind of, you know, what goes up must come down kind of methodology. And in the early 2000s, you know, the tech bubble that happened in the early 2000s was probably a good case in point. You know, to date, no one's really been able to identify the one thing or things that caused the the dot-com bubble to burst. It was merely just gravity prices just got too high so as a wrap-up then uh, it seems like we're not in a bubble uh, we're in there, there certainly are micro bubbles or so asset bubbles or stock bubbles that are asset or stock specific uh, and if you're investing in those stocks then you better have an exit strategy that is you've got to have an exit strategy when you're going to sell take your profit before the bubble burst because it will we no one knows when it's going to happen um, but it, markets can turn very quickly. Uh, it will burst at some point. So just make sure that you're uh, within your investment strategy. You've got a strategy that's going to address that risk or alternatively, uh, the approach that I much prefer is to invest in a way, so using methodologies that avoid uh, exposure to these micro bubble assets. And perhaps the uh, most important theme of this podcast today is that there's still some investment excellent investment opportunities in all markets. Don't assume just because the share market is trading at all-time highs that everything is overvalued. That would be a poor assumption. Okay, that's it for me for this week until next week. Bye for now.